and he gets rid of them as soon as he can, get off the plane, get off the plane, bundles them into the boat with the three bikes. <laughs> Straight away they discover, first of all, that they haven't read the tide tables properly. Now, tide tables are not hard to get. So, I mean, this is amateur night of the movies. They haven't read the tide tables properly and the tide is actually sweeping them out to sea, not into the shore. The other thing they then realise is you actually can't paddle this boat with three bikes on it because the bikes are awkward and taking up too much space. And so the first thing they do is they ditch the three bikes and straight away at that very early point, still when they're out to sea in the very early hours of the 30th of September, the operation is already going wrong. Talk about fail to plan and plan to fail. This is a classic example of that. As I say, Simon, I've no doubt you've been involved in some real botch-ups operations, but this one, Simon... Hello, Tom. How are you? I'm very well, Simon. I'm very well. Nice to speak to you again. Good. You too. Tom, we're in the middle of a fascinating story that was triggered with a find you made in the cupboard, in the secret cupboard when you got promoted. The knife, the German knife of German origin from 1940, which is fantastic when you think about it, how these things can lie for so long and then trigger this whole investigation that you've carried out and written about in great detail. We had spoke about the wartime and the German policy and how they used and abused prisoners that they found in the countries that they occupied across the continent and sent them over here as spies without much training, without much preparation, kind of scattergun approach to it. I've since heard a story about America as well. They sent spies into America too. Much the same idea, and most of them were caught, or we think most of them were caught very quickly. So we had got that kind of background and your audition for the Dad's Army series on television and the film, I think you said. That was a shame about that. Uh, but we want to focus on a particular operation that took place where three people in particular were landed on the shores of Scotland. Tell us that story, Tom. Tell us the background to that story and who was involved and how it came about. Thanks, Simon. Yeah. It's late summer 1940, and by this time, uh, the German invasion of Britain has been brought forward. Should have been 1941, but because they've invaded France a lot quicker than they thought, it's all been brought forward, and the German intelligence service have been caught out very badly because they've been given huge amounts of money over a long number of years to put in deep cover agents into the UK, but they basically haven't. Their only intelligence has been from tittle-tattle, Tea Party set in London before the war, and a lot of the money that should have been spent on training and developing and inserting deep cover agents has actually gone into the back pockets of corrupt officials within the German intelligence services. So there's a panic on because now they're starting to get asked questions. What's happened to these people? Where are our spies? Where are our information? Where are the airfields? What's the disposition of the Royal Navy? Where are the ships? How many troops are there? Where are they barracked, et cetera, et cetera? All the things you need to know before you invade a country. And they're going to ask these questions. And of course, they do not have the answers. And so what they do, as you've described, is they say, tell you what, never mind about quality. Let's go for quantity. Let's sweep the prison system for con men and fraudsters who were always their first choice and put as many people we can into the UK, into the British Isles to see what they can find out. If 90% of them fail, if 99% of them fail, it doesn't matter because they are expendable. 
They're not German, they're expendable, but if one gets through, we'll be able to claim triumph and be able to take the pressure off us with the German high command. So this is the scenario there is. And Hamburg is the centre of that spy operation where spies are brought and given, frankly, derisory training for their missions. And even their missions are so imprecise. People are parachuted in, just saying, make your way to a big town and we'll give you a shortwave radio and report back on what vehicles you see. Or they'll land it in a pair, a couple would be landed and make your way to the nearest harbour and report what ships you see. It was all absolutely half-baked, to be frank. And it was very difficult to see, even if it had succeeded with the quality of the intelligence picture they would have got. But anyway, to our story, down in the south coast of England, you joked about Dad's army, but Dad's army actually were very much on patrol in that summer and autumn of 1940. And they were catching these guys. They may have been a decrepit bunch of old men and young men, but they were actually catching quite a lot of people as they struggled ashore, as they parachuted ashore, etc., etc. So they were actually being successful to the extent that the Germans thought, tell you what, let's put people into Scotland. They knew that the Polish army in exile was in Scotland. There'd be a lot of Europeans going about that two or three of our folk wouldn't arouse suspicion. Germany by that time had overrun Norway, and so they had air bases and naval bases within easy reach of the east coast of Scotland. So the east coast of Scotland became a preferred place. They thought they would try to insert agents. The big problem, of course, being that the east coast of Scotland's a long way from the south ports, from London, from the heart of the war machine. And so getting their spies there was going to be a problem. But the whole thing was so ramshackle, that seemed to be the least of their considerations. Tom, it seems a real miscalculation there and a real shortage of intelligence on the part of the German high command, because everybody knows you get a better welcome on the West Coast than you do in the East Coast. Yeah, well, there was a wee problem to that, and it's called geography, Simon. <laughs> I appreciate maybe that's not one of your strong points, but you'll have known, having worked <laughs> on the West Coast of Scotland, that when you look out from the West Coast, the first thing you see is America if your eyes are very good. But if you're, coming, if you're coming from the continent of Europe, then you're going to be landing in the East Coast. But in terms, of the, in terms of the planning of the operation, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, you were a member of a Strathclyde Serious Crime Squad, so you've been involved in some really half-baked operations, I've no doubt, but this really does take the <laughs> even, even you, even you, <laughs> we'd, have, we'd have balked at this. A team was drawn together, Carl Drucker, who was a 35-year-old, we'll call him Carl Drucker because truth to tell, we don't really know who most of these people actually were. Mm. Drucker is a case in point. He was a fraudster, he was a con man, he was a spiv. He'd been in the prison system. He spoke fluent French. He claimed to be Swiss, but he'd spent a lot of time in Germany. And the reality is that actually nobody knew who he was because he had so many aliases and pseudonyms. So you get Drucker. You get Werner Walty, who is a guy in his mid-twenties, big, strong fella, not too bright, a good foot soldier. But Walty had just about no English at all. He could hardly speak English. Imagine inserting an intelligence agent into a country where they couldn't even speak the language. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous in many yes. senses. And then you had Vera Eriksson. Now, she, as we've described, a different kettle of fish. She 
is a very sophisticated lady, a real beautiful young woman with a long background of dealing with powerful men and in powerful positions. She'd have been in London before the war. She'd acted as a kind of intelligence agent, feeding back just cocktail party tittle-tattle. She was the sort of woman who older men felt able to confide in uh, because they were romantically interested in her. She was one of these women that was exceedingly alluring, and she knew it, and she used that facet of her character to the utmost. And the fourth prospective member of the team was the only serious heavyweight in the pack, and that was Captain Hans Dirks. And Dirks was a German intelligence officer of some consequence, of some seniority, and he must have realised that the whole invasion spies thing was like lambs to the slaughter, because the original plan was that Dirks and Ericsson would land along with Drucker and Volte, but they would split up. And Ericsson and Dirks would make their way to London, where Vera would introduce Dirks to all her London pals who were in the Society of London, and he would thereafter set up a proper spy network. The other pair were merely told to make their way to London and report what they could on the journey. But right from the start, it's very imprecise. Dirks must have realised that this was a suicide mission and that he didn't fancy much being part of it. And at the same time, the German High Command realised that it was a suicide mission and that if Dirks was captured, then he had a lot of valuable information to impart. And so it wasn't a good mm. idea to send him at all because he might not withstand interrogation and he might give up more secrets than they could cope with. So from very early on, Dirk was out of the picture and it was just going to be Vera, Druga and Werner Volte that went on the operation. And the plan was, was dead simple. They would be taken after the training, such as it was. They would be taken from Hamburg to Stavanger to Norway, and thereafter they'd be taken either by boat or by seaplane, and they'd be dropped off very close to the shore of the east coast of Scotland, where they would paddle a rubber dinghy ashore, equipped with three English bicycles. Now, the bicycles <laughs> had been found in the, yes, I know you're laughing, the bicycles had been found in the basement of the British embassy in Oslo when it was overrun by the Germans. And they thought that this bit of a kit, the, the, the British bikes, would give the three some kind of authenticity. It's absolutely laughable because they're given British bicycles, but they're given a German knife, a German radio, a German pistol. They're wearing German or continental clothes. They're given papers, identity papers, which are clearly forged, very poor quality. And they're given handfuls of English currency, very poor forgeries, but also in large denominations. Now, in these days in 1940, if someone produced a fiver, then that was yeah. thought to be acceptable. Yeah. I know in your part of the world that still is the case, but really, in, <laughs> that was extraordinary. Um, so, What's a fiver? What's I'll, ex I'll explain to you, Simon. Um, so yeah. the whole thing is happy. And of course, there was personal relationships too, because Dirks and Vera Erickson were in a relationship. And Ruga and Vera Ericsson had been in a relationship long time previous when they'd met each other in France. So there was a kind of love triangle going on here. And Dirks must have realised 
the whole thing was toxic and that probably the best yeah. thing he could do for his future was get rid of a lot of them. And so they were given derisory training, how to use the radios. They were taken to a place of safety and they were shown how to disembark from the seaplane, enter the rubber dinghy. But they weren't given practice of how to do this with their pedal cycles. And it was all, as I say, very, very half-baked. And that was typical of the training of these invasion spies. It was derisory. And thinking about this, I was thinking Volte and Vera must have realised that they had little chance of success. But then I thought, but what were their options, really? Yeah. Druga and Volte had come out of prison. And the only option for them was to be sent back to prison to face, but it wasn't even an uncertain future. It was a pretty certain future, and it, but it wasn't a very rosy future in a prison yeah. controlled by the Gestapo. So they were caught up in this and they had no alternatives. So after the training, they what were about to set off from Stavanger and they decided to go out for a party the night before in the finest traditions. And so they all go out the 27th of September for a night's heavy drinking. And on their way home, Dirks, who is driving the car, crashes the car, and he is killed, and the rest are injured. And there's all sorts of rumours about the accident. Was Druga driving the car? Was it Dirks that was driving the car? Did Druga crash the car to kill Dirks, his love rival for Vera? On and on and on. Truth to tell, we don't know, but it looks very much like it was just a drunken accident in a car, and Dirks ends up dead. But that changed the whole tone of the intelligence services. Dirks was one of theirs, and they had a very high regard for him, and they then thought, this lot are at it in some way. They couldn't figure out how, let's get rid of them. And there was very little sympathy and very little cooperation thereafter for Vera, Carol, and Werner Volte. And this road accident that Dirks was killed in, the other three were still fit to carry out and travel for this operation the next day. Only just. They were, okay. they were, all, they were all cuts and bruises. And in, any, in anything other than a ham-fisted operation, the whole thing would have been cancelled. I mean, the real yeah. joke about this, Simon, is that there was no need for them to go at all. Because by this time, Operation Sea Lion, the invasion of the UK of Britain, had been cancelled. The Battle yes. of Britain was more or less lost on the 15th of September and Hitler had ordered Sea Line to be postponed. So the whole need for invasion spies, the urgency for invasion spies had passed. I think the Third Reich turned their attention to the Russian front at that point, didn't it? Yeah. It just shows you how poor the information was, the whole thing was. And what about Vera, Tom? She's obviously what we would call in these parts a bit of a girl. You know, it just seems that she's maybe pulling the strings behind the scenes here as well. There's a lot more to Vera. I think we'll discover more as we go along. I'm reading between the lines here, but I think there's a mystery, a whole lot going on with Vera. She was a dance. She was also involved with the Russians, wasn't she? We'll talk about that later, but it's pretty okay. clear that Vera was playing both ends against the middle. It's easy to paint Vera as a kind of a master manipulator, temptress who had some cunning plan that she was putting into execution. I honestly don't think that's the case. I think she was a young woman, a beautiful young woman, who simply used her looks as best she could to survive. 
I think it was all about survival. I don't think she yeah. was, she may have been beautiful and manipulative, but she wasn't very clever. If she'd been clever, she wouldn't have ended up in a rubber boat paddling off the east coast of Scotland. It's just as simple as that. But anyway, on the night of the 29th, they're all loaded onto this seaplane and they set off for the east coast of Scotland. There's various trials and errors. The plane can't land. It turns back. But this time it's autumn in the North Sea. The weather's turning against them. But they eventually, late on the night of the 29th, they managed to land. And of course, first thing that happens is the seaplane is supposed to land about a mile offshore. But the pilot doesn't fancy landing a mile offshore and being seen because he knows that the east coast of Scotland pretty well equipped with fighter aircraft who the stations are there to defend the British fleet at Scapa Flow. So the Spitfires and Hurricanes, certainly Hurricanes, all over the place. And he doesn't fancy being shot up by one of them. So he lands further out to sea than he should have done. And he gets rid of them as soon as he can. Get off the boat, get off the plane, get off the plane. Bundles them into the boat with the three bikes. <laughs> and straight away they discover, first of all, that they haven't read the timetables properly. Now, timetables are not hard to get. So, I mean... This is amateur night of the movies. They haven't read the tide tables properly, and the tide is actually sweeping them out to sea, not into the shore. The other thing they then realise is you actually can't paddle this boat with three bikes on it because the so, bikes are yeah. awkward and taking up too much space. And so the first thing they do is they ditch the three bikes and straight away at that very early point, still when they're out to sea in the very early hours, of the 30th of September, the operation is already going wrong. Talk about fail to plan and plan to fail. This is a yeah. classic example of that. As I say, Simon, I've no doubt you've been involved in some real botch ups operations, but this one, Simon, even you. Yeah. <laughs> There's no drink involved here. They're all sober as far as we know. So They are all sober and they set out to paddle as best they can into the shore. And they're supposed to land at the dead of night, of course. But it takes them four hours paddling against the tide to get this rubber dinghy into the shore. And they land near Buckhaven in the east coast of Scotland and they drag themselves ashore. They're soaking wet, they're exhausted, and their primary means of getting away, getting to London on these bikes is gone. And perhaps that's just as well, Simon, because when you think about it, clearly nobody had looked at the geography of it. It's 500 miles from that part of the Scotland to London. And the thought of them getting on their bikes and toddling down the road, fully equipped with a German radio and a German pistol and all, <laughs> it's right out of carry-on spying. It really is. It's the same mistake that we get from call centres and things like that to this day when they assume that Scotland is only half an hour each way across and t top to bottom. Well, you just go around this corner to Aberdeen. We get it all the time. We get that. So the Germans have obviously made the same miscalculation that London was just round the corner for them, on their well, bikes. It's, well, it's, the thing is, it's easy to look at the map and say, well, you know, you, you've worked in the rural parts of the west of Scotland, but it only looks a few miles. But in reality, yeah. it's several hours' journey because of the nature of the land and the roads yeah. and all the rest of it. Plan B is that they split up and Druga and Vera will head to London and Walti will split up and he will take a different train and he will go to Edinburgh. 
And so Volte makes his way to Buckpool at station, while Vera and Druga make their way to Port Gordon, a railway station. Now, of course, remember there was a vast railway network then, and in the northeast of Scotland, there were a lot of trains travelling up and down because there was a lot of service personnel, yeah. the Royal Navy and Scapa Flow, thousands of men, etc. So there they are. So Volte manages to get on the train to Edinburgh, but Druga and Vera are stuck in Port Gordon railway station, tiny little railway station with a little waiting room. And they stick out like sore thumbs because it's such a small place. Everybody knows everybody else. And who are these two strangers with the wet feet yeah. wearing these <laughs> funny clothes? And the, uh, the whole thing about the place being swarming with Polish people simply isn't true. There were Polish, a lot of Polish people in Scotland at that time, but they were further south. In fact, they were round yeah. about the Edinburgh area of the Polish it. army in exile. So the whole thing is disaster. And then the dead giveaway. The station master's got his eyes on them and wondering who they are. And then the dead giveaway. Because Druga pulls out of his pocket a piece of sausage, a piece <laughs> of obviously German sausage and a large <laughs> knife. And he cuts off a piece of sausage and he eats it. Now, you know, who, who does that? That's obviously a continental. And so, and so the station master, straight on, straight on the phone to the local police station, and the local constable attends and confronts the two of them. Now, remember that they have been given, Druga has got a case with them, and he's armed with a pistol, and he's armed with a knife, etc., etc. But the pistol is in the suitcase, where it's about as useful as an ashtray on a motorbike. <laughs> And so they are both arrested without any kind of murmur at all, and they are marched by the constable to the police station. I think they and would have been the, quite relieved and delighted to be arrested, Tom. Well, <laughs> a of funnily enough, in terms of uh, some of the invasion spies who were landed, the first thing they did was actually make their way to the local police station, give themselves up, yeah. because they didn't want to be any part of it. They knew they were lucky to have survived the landing. They were the people who were invariably turned into double agents. They also knew that they could be executed for having been found as spies in a foreign country. Of, of course they did. If they had any knowledge at all, a lot of them seemed remarkably ill-informed, but yes, they would know that. This whole thing with the bikes and the sausage and all the rest of it, it just proves what you say regularly, that the truth is much stranger than fiction. Because if you wrote this as a fiction, People would think you were being fanciful. They would think you were being a bit simple, wouldn't they? The thing is that going forward just a bit, when they were actually taken in for interrogation by MI5 officers, the MI5 officers thought it was so stupid that it must be a ruse, that it must be a distraction for something else. Nobody could be this inept. Nobody could be this ill-prepared. But yeah. then, of course, when they looked across the board, a lot of the other agents that had been landed, they realised that, no, eh, this is just the way they were doing. And one of the MI5 agents said that they were just sent across as parcels of meat, like lambs to the slaughter, totally expendable. So anyway, they are detained, and of course they phoned Edinburgh, where the MI5 had its regional command area, and they sent, right, well, we'll, just, we'll send someone, just take them straight to Edinburgh. They are not detained. They don't appear in court up in the north or anything like that. They're taken straight to Edinburgh. Now, what's interesting about it is that the photographs survive of these individuals when they're arrested. 
and they all look pretty bedraggled. But Vera looks absolutely magnificent. It's as if she'd stepped out of a fashion magazine. <laughs> and it's quite incredible, the poise and the, just the glamour of this woman. Having spent four hours in a rubber dinghy in the North Sea, <laughs> it's unbelievable. So Druga and Ericsson are in custody, and they're being taken to Edinburgh and thence to London. Volte is still on the loose, and it's known that Volte is on the train going to Edinburgh. So they phone ahead, and they get the Edinburgh CID, and the detective superintendent there was Willie Merrilies, who we've mentioned before. And Merrilies is very much the leading light in the Edinburgh CID in, in the pre-war days. And he's very much a showman. He's the first policeman, really, with an eye to publicity, self-publicity. Is this who you modelled yourself on, Mr. Wood, is it? I'm about this a is, head taller than he was. This is your, your predecessor. No, no he, no, he was a master. He was an incredible character, way ahead of his time. Some of the strokes he pulled were, he couldn't do it now, but he's worthy of a conversation on his own, very much on his own. But anyway... So Merrilies decides, he knows when the, this train's going to come into Waverley Station and he's going to disguise himself as a porter, a railway porter, and he's going to carry out the arrest, you see, and this is all about him and he, he wouldn't think of sending somebody else to do it, he would have to do this himself, the detective super. Resemblance, that's where any resemblance with you takes you apart because you'd have delegated for sure. Dressed up as a porter. No, I can I never dressed up as a porter <laughs> Anyway, the, the, what they do is they search the left luggage office. They find a case which has been left by this strange continental man. They look in the case and they find the gun. They find the radio and everything else. So they lie in wait for Walty to come back. And Walty eventually comes back, whereupon he's arrested after a struggle, so-called. Uh, and, of course, there's... A lot of dispute about whether there was any struggle or not, but the dramatic and that's effect. That's the knife. That's, and that's is that the, knife? the knife. Yes, that's the, the knife. That the that's the knife he had in his pocket. And what is alleged that he takes out the knife and he tries to escape, and Medellin overpowers him. But there's various versions of that event. But anyway, <laughs> that's the knife. So, and from here, all that's very comedic. But from here, the story takes a dark. Term because they're all taken to London straight away. They're not put before a court. And I've actually seen letters from the Procurator Fiscal to the Scottish Government saying these people were arrested in Scotland, they should have been processed in Scotland, etc., etc., etc. But they weren't. We were put on straight on a train under armed guard and to London and into the hands of MI5, who at first didn't believe that this was a genuine operation and thought it was a distraction and thought there had to yeah. be more to it, that it could not be this stupid. But eventually, having interviewed both Druga and Volte, they realised that they were just a couple of, I want, they were a couple of dopes. That's a shame to say that. They were just two, two guys who had been given an offer they couldn't be fused and were caught up in this maelstrom, which was the war, but the, because of the way they had been arrested, i.e. publicly, that they could not be turned successfully into double agents. It might be that they were a distraction, because they remember there was meant to be four of them, that's the way it was planned, that there would be four of them landing. The two dummies that you're talking about might well have been the sacrificial 
lambs to be captured in Bucky, whilst Vera and her accomplice, as a couple, they'd have a much better chance, I would imagine, of travelling as a couple than you would as two Germans eating German sausage. <laughs> so maybe no, no, they no, too were maybe they too yeah, were the sacrifice that's all along. Well, that's entirely possible. But of course, you remember that long before he's killed in the crash, it's known that Dirks is not going to be going. And from that moment in time, that plan, that plot is out of reckoning. You may be right. We're maybe underestimating, but just everything about the thing. When Druga is searched, he's got a Hamburg tram ticket in his pocket. And you encounter that. You know better than I the lengths to which we go when people are going undercover to make Mm -hmm. sure that they cannot be traced, to make Mm -hmm. sure that their legend, that their background is fixed, and to make sure that everything they carry with them cannot be traced back to someone or something else. They go to inordinate lengths to do that. And the thought that Drucker is allowed to get on the train and and nobody's actually been through his pockets to check. I've never seen that before. I've never seen that before in my life. In terms of fabricating evidence, this is Edinburgh we're talking about. It's Edinburgh. It's Edinburgh. <laughs> no, they're caught right-handed. Now, the, the interesting thing is, you see, Vera, for all her seeming sort of haplessness that she happens to be there caught up in this, Vera's actually been very astute because Vera has not been caught in possession of anything. It's Volte and Druka that have got the radio. Yeah. Volte and Druka that have got the gun. Volte and Druka who have got the code words. Volte and Druka who have got the knives. Right. Under the legislation at the time, it's them who are uh, behind the eight ball. It's not Vera. And under the treason acts, the treason legislation of the day, the evidence is very compelling. And it's interesting because there were over 50 of these invasion spies who were landed that we know of. And most of them were turned into double agents, very successful double agents. But there were 13 of them, the unlucky 13, Druga and Volte being two of them, who were actually put on trial. And of course, they were put on trial in camera. It was a confidential court. There was not much defence they could offer. They had been caught in possession of these articles. The legislation. That'd be the old Bailey. Yeah. The old, the old Bailey. Bailey. Yeah. Yes. The old Bailey. And I've seen transcripts of the trial and it took about half an hour. They were tried together and there was not much defence, frankly. Surprisingly, Nobody put up the defence that these were two hapless dopes who were caught up in it. That wasn't accepted. Remember, this is 1940-41 when Britain is really under threat, tremendous threat. So there was not much mercy. And Druka and Volte are both sentenced to death and they are both hanged in 1941. Now, Vera Eriksson, let's talk about Vera. Vera was Danish-Russian who certainly had connections with the German intelligence service and certainly had connections with the British intelligence service too. Because the first thing she did when she was arrested is she asked to speak to Colonel so-and-so, a member of MI5. And so it appears that Vera was actually a double, double, double agent. She was probably gathering information for the Danish, for the Russian, for the German, and for the British intelligence services. And it's interesting because when the indictment is served on Druka and Volte, 
Vera Erickson has just written out the script. And when people ask where she is, it's just said that she's elsewhere helping the intelligence services with their investigations. She doesn't appear anywhere else in the storyline at all. Disappeared completely, written out of the script. And of course, this adds tremendous allure to the Vera legend of what happened to to Vera. And there's all sorts of stories about what happened to Vera, how in actual fact she was the lover of some senior intelligence officer in Britain and she was protected. After the war, she adopted the pseudonym of, of an aristocrat and lived in luxury in Mayfair in London, or that she lived as a in a country house in the Isle of Wight and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. But the truth is less glamorous than that. The truth about Vera is that she couldn't be used as a double agent either because the whole thing about the arrest had been far too public, not least because of the Willie Merrilees' efforts. She was actually sent as an informant into one of the many refugee camps for displaced German and hostile alien places on the Isle of Man, where she simply carried a low-level role of reporting back tittle-tattle and anybody who was seeing anything valuable to intelligence services. So she was used in that way for the rest of the war. And after the end of the war, of course, she was of no value whatsoever. And certainly she was of no value to the intelligence services. So she was simply sent back home, repatriated as an undesirable alien back to Germany. But during her time within the internment camp in the Isle of Man, Vera had developed or caught tuberculosis. And from the records that we can be pretty sure about, 99% sure about, was that she only survived until 1948. And that she actually died as a very young woman, riven with TB. And of course, tuberculosis was rife within these sort of camps. So it was a tragic end for all of them. And we've laughed at their antics, at their stupidity. And then you say, well, actually, they were spies, and if they could have done a misservice, they would have. They were working for our enemies. But when you look at them and they stand back and look at them, you can't help feel a little sympathy for the position these people were in, particularly Druga and Volte. And again, ask the million-dollar question, Simon, what would you have done if you had been Mm. in their circumstances? What would you have done? But but they were in jail. They were fraudsters and con men anyway, Tom. You could never have trusted the word they said anyway. That was the whole problem with the scheme. If they had sent back information to Germany, the Germans couldn't have trusted it any more than we could trust anything that came out of their mouths anyway. I think you're absolutely right in that regard. But, of course, it made sense. If you weren't going to give people decent training, then at least choose people who had some natural inclination for the job. And fraudsters and people like that, as you and I both know, are Mm quick-witted. They're survivors, and they can manage to somehow get through the holes in the net. So in that sense, Mm -hmm. it was a good idea. But the bottom line to it all was it was a desperate and incompetent scheme, the whole thing, built on desperation because of the failures of the German intelligence service and the wholesale corruption. And of course, later on, the chickens came home to roost and Admiral Canaris was exposed for the fraud that he was. He himself fell victim and he himself was executed before the end of the war by the Germans. 
He was executed in early 1945. Well, it's fascinating, all the details and all the wee insights that you've got to it and facts that you've got to it. Let's do a David Attenborough then, as he does at the end of his wildlife programs, uh, and tell us a bit behind the scenes. Because there's some amount of research going on here from finding a knife and an envelope in a cupboard in the Edinburgh Police Headquarters. Where on earth did you dig all this up and find all this information? It's a triangulation. Put it this way, there's a lot of information out there about Vera, but most of it's wrong. There's books written about her, and there's been articles of the beautiful spy and all this, but most of it is basically wrong. And so what I did was I gathered all the information that I could and that I then cross-referenced it and triangulated it and basically did a cold case review. Basically okay. sat down and said, okay, what can we establish factually? And some government records are available now. So in other words, I saw the transcript of uh, some parts of the trial which have been released. I saw elements of Druka's interview. I saw assessments made by interrogating officers of the character and nature. It's quite interesting because when they interviewed Vera, they just simply said that this woman is incapable of telling the truth. She doesn't know right. the meaning of the truth. Yeah. And, and we've met people like that in our professional mm -hmm. lives who the only time they tell the truth is when they forget to tell lies. And they lie and they dissemble as a default position. I did a lot of research and I looked at a lot of records and I found it very interesting. This was no master stroke by the German intelligence services. It was a guddle, and it was uh, incompetent, and it was bungled from the start. We'd been in enough police operations on both sides of the country to know that mm -hmm. actually we, <laughs> the error factor is always there. But thankfully, not the extent it was in these poor folk that were landed in Scotland. And you started this section off in our last episode talking about how the Germans were on a kind of pedestal as far as the UK was concerned at that time. We thought they'd more money, we thought they had more ammo, more weapons, that they were superior in the air and at sea. And of course the Gestapo were totally feared, quite rightfully, across Europe and further afield. So we had them on that kind of pedestal. And all along, operations like this displayed a total ineptitude as far as their security services were concerned. And again, as you've already said, we had the upper hand as far as intelligence was concerned and misinformation that we were feeding them, which played a big part in our eventual victory, and especially in D-Day and the successful landings, to misinform the Germans along the way. It goes further than that, Simon, because actually the lead we took in intelligence gathering and the interpretation of intelligence, it still remains because Bletchley Park became GCHQ. And GCHQ is one of the jewels in the crown of the British state, in my view. And of course, yes. because it is secret, they cannot ever say what they know and what they do not know. But I know this, that they are incredibly well regarded across the world. Mm -hmm for their yeah. competence. But coming back yeah. to your question about the British psyche, about the Germans are better at everything, and this comes into the way we perceive ourselves. We always like to perceive ourselves as being the plucky underdog. Yeah. We're outmatched for technical equipment and all the rest of it, but through endeavour and daring, we finally get ourselves through. And coming back to our area of business, when you read crime fiction, you see this recurring all the time. 
this notion of the great detective, the detective who follows hunches and is inspired by some sort of external force, some sort of genius. He's got big yeah, personal problems. Invariably an alcoholic or drug addict. He can't yeah. function in relationships. He doesn't work well in teams. He's a loner. I think you're describing <laughs> Vera here from the Northeast, who's, who I know is one of your heroes or heroines. I think it's very interesting because you, this plays through our whole national psyche. We love the gifted amateur, the plucky yes. underdog who comes through and confounds us all. And the truth is, and the truth is, we know the truth is, that what solves major crime and what drives good intelligence services are good people and good systems, and you have to have good systems. And in the invasion spy story, the Germans lamentably had neither good systems or good people. That's fantastic because we inherited that. As you know, the latter part of my career, I worked undercover in surveillance and whatnot. And these things rely almost exclusively on intelligence gathering. And it's a world where guesses and fanciful theories have no place whatsoever. And the very, very cream, the cream of detectives, you could tell us the qualities they have. The cream of surveillance, I could point to a few guys who were incredible. The cream of intelligence services, the thing that they valued the most was the truth. But they didn't just accept it from one source. They insisted that anything that ever got into a file had to have been corroborated to the nth degree. It had to be a fact. It had to be so sure of it that there was little chance of it being wrong. And that was the kind of intelligence that we were brought up on, which no doubt we inherited those systems, as you say, from the wars, from the yeah. wars that were fought over the years. It had to be triangulated. I remember speaking to an American guy when I was at the FBI. And he was very complimentary about the work of the British intelligence services because they had obviously worked in the intelligence field. And he said that they had the most enormous resources to pick up intelligence, especially radio and computer traffic. He said, but the thing that is crucial and the thing that the British services were excellent at was interpretation. So you get a yeah. massive information, but it's how to interpret that and how to build a picture. It's all very well having a massive information but what does this mean? What does this yeah. mean? How can we triangulate this to take us forward? He said, that's where, he said, the British intelligence services have the edge. And of course, and that was true in 1940, as it's true today. Fascinating, Tom. And I'm sure it's a subject we'll return to many times in the future as well. I can't believe here's you and I, two old coppers, talking about intelligence on a podcast. thing is, Simon, as long as we only talk about it, as long as nobody comes along and tests us for it, we'll be fine. <laughs> Tom, that's been brilliant. And I still, I'm not sure about Vera. I know that you think she died in 1948, but she was capable of anything, this woman. That, of course, is the enduring thing, because she could have been. She was beautiful enough. She could have been a 1930s film star. She had that kind of look. She had that poise. That's the romantic version of it. But I fear in the reality. Yeah that Vera was as much a victim as she was a manipulator. And she ricocheted between these powerful men, trying to use them, and they were trying to use her. But at the end of the day, I always think Vera had really been a player 
Why would she have ended up getting out of her Dornier flying boat into a tiny dinghy and rowing ashore to the east coast of Scotland? They would not have wasted an asset like that on what was clearly a very risky, not to say half-baked operation. And there we'll leave the mystery. I like to think it's a mystique of Vera. Tom, I'll speak to you soon, and we'll be back here on Crime Time Inc. very soon. It's been great chatting to you about the Expendables. And I know that it's going to be featured in your book in the springtime, is that right? That's right. It's going to be one part of a collection of stories that I'll be publishing in the springtime, together with the description of a whole lot of other fascinating characters that I've unearthed and fascinating cases I have done cold case reviews on and drawn out interesting facts were not previously known. And Tom, we must have a podcast about what a cold case review actually entails and take us through it from start to finish. Because you refer to it regularly, but most people won't have, won't have any idea. I'm a Harry Bosch fan, so I've got a good idea. I was lucky. I was involved in a number of historical cases, but also when I left the police, I was invited to conduct some cold case reviews, homicide reviews in the northeast of England, and I found it fascinating. The techniques that I found there I've actually used in writing the book I did about the Ruxton murders and in researching stories like The Expendables. Great stuff. Thanks, Tom. Speak soon. Good night. Next time on Crime Time, Inc. It is a special case to me because it's the only serious case I was involved in that remains unsolved. And furthermore, it's a case that I'm hopeful will be solved. And broadcast like this and talking about it like this might just be the catalyst, might just make somebody pick up a phone or suggest a name. So anyway, this pair were going along the road, rutted track, taking it very easy, and they see in front of them what looks like a black bin bag full of rubbish. And of course, they avoid it so it doesn't snag beneath the car. And as they're driving round it, they look down and they see that it's actually not a bin bag, but the body of a woman that has been flattened, that has clearly been run over at least once, maybe twice. I remember sitting, speaking to her parents. I had to go and tell her parents what had happened to her. And sitting, speaking to her parents, and her parents absolutely distraught because seeing her slide into addiction for them had been like watching a train crash in slow motion. There was nothing they could do. They tried everything. They tried reaching out uh, to her in every way and there was simply nothing they could do. And our father described it to me. He'd been a merchant seaman at one time in his life. And he said it was like she'd gone overboard and we were reaching out to pull her back, but she drifted away. <laughs>